In 2014, Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond was fatally shot by David Martinez during a raid on the Martinez family home. According to law enforcement, the act was murder. According to Martinez, it was self-defense. From Crime Story Media and E1 Entertainment, this is Night Raid. I'm your host, Molly Miller, and this week we're covering the testimony of David Martinez, both the gripping direct examination by Brady Sullivan and the razor-sharp cross-examination by Deputy District Attorney Michael Blake. With the trial coming to a close, emotions are high and the stakes are heavy as the prosecution seeks justice for Officer Sean Diamond and the defense attempts to give David Martinez back his freedom. You shot to kill that day, right? I shot to protect my family. Stick around for the sixth installment of Night Raid after this. Where were you on the afternoon of June 4th, 2019 at approximately 3.10 p.m.? I was sitting in the gallery of courtroom 105 of the Claire Shortridge Fultz Criminal Justice Center in downtown L.A. For the duration of the trial, the court was generally occupied by a handful of quiet observers. But now, the wooden benches were packed and buzzing with anticipation. On the right side of the gallery, Sean Diamond's daughter, Margot, was flanked by 10 off-duty officers. On the left side, David Martinez's extended family sat arm-in-arm with his sister Brenda in the middle. Her parents had brought things to keep her occupied—a comic book, snacks, a picture of her chihuahua. But her focus remained solely on her brother, sitting at the council's table. Between the left and the right, there was a mass of spectators—veteran prosecutors, reporters, retirees, and a swarm of law clerks. Each of them had a story to tell. During the breaks, one clerk, jacked up on Red Bull, bragged of his candy crush prowess. Another informed her friend that after this clerkship, she was going to be an entertainment attorney. She already had a connection to a former contestant on The Bachelor. We were in Hollywood, after all. Kind of. The courthouse and the Walk of Fame are separated by 30 minutes of bumper-to-bumper traffic on the 101 freeway. But what brought the masses to courtroom 105 wasn't a movie premiere or a star-studded Q&A. We were all there because Brady Sullivan was near the end of his defense. And we all had the same question. Would David Martinez testify? There's a reason that most defense attorneys advise their clients to take advantage of their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Taking the stand is a massive gamble. When a defendant testifies on their own behalf, it gives the prosecution an opportunity to attack the defendant on cross-examination. Even the strongest defense may falter before a jury if a defendant struggles to answer a prosecutor's questions, confuses minor details of their narrative, or even appears nervous on the stand. But in some trials, it's worth the risk. In some trials, the defense decides that the jury needs to hear the story straight from the mouth of the man accused of murder. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you may give in the cause now pending before the court shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Yes. Thank you. Please state your first and last name for the record. David Martinez. I'm Molly Miller, and this is Night Raid. 
When David Martinez took the stand, the jury had heard almost a month's worth of testimony about him. Long before the jury heard David's voice, the prosecution had submitted extensive evidence of David's membership in the Mongols Motorcycle Club. Through witness testimony, the DDAs portrayed David as an active member of a violent gang, a man who saw an opportunity to kill a cop and took his shot. Now, it was Brady Sullivan's chance to show the jury a different side of David, and David's chance to tell his side of the story. Sullivan began his questioning by addressing the prosecution's allegations that David had assaulted a rival gang member and had a patch on his motorcycle vest to prove it. All testimony in this episode, including the following direct examination, is portrayed by actors who are reading excerpts from the official transcript. Some excerpts are edited for clarity and time. Did you yourself ever have occasion to come to the defense of another brother? Uh, yes, I have. Okay. And as a result of that, did you ever get a special patch from the Mongols? Yes. Okay. What was the name of that patch? Respect few, fear none. What happened? How did you get that? I was with Raul. Uh, Raul, I just got out of the hospital, I know. I think it was a week after he got out of the hospital. David's referring to Raul Carrera, a Mongol with the moniker of trouble. Raul had been in the hospital after he was stabbed in the ribs. The blade punctured his lung. What happened? Uh, we were in his old neighborhood going to the meat market. Uh, we were going to buy some meat to make a barbecue at his house. And an individual walked up to him who I believed recognized him because that was his old neighborhood and said something to the effect of Arizona Maravilla. Uh, Arizona Maravilla is a gang. David points to his forehead above his left eyebrow. And I hit him hard enough that I cut him open. And he moved back and that was all that happened. So you struck this apparent gang member in the head who you believed was about to assault Raul? Uh, that's correct. Why did you think that was necessary? Why didn't you just let Raul defend himself? Um, because Raul was injured, and I thought it was necessary because of the individual's demeanor towards Raul, and Raul was still recovering from his wounds. In his testimony, David reframed the fight as a necessary defense of his injured friend, but it was still a physical altercation to protect another Mongol. So how did David's relationship with the Mongols deteriorate to the point that he allegedly wanted to leave the club? To answer that question, Brady Sullivan asked David about a series of freeway shootings that occurred in 2014. Now, in the fall of 2014, did you become aware of freeway shootings where Mongols were targeted? I was present at one of them. So let's start with that, the one that you have personal knowledge about, okay? This particular freeway shooting was the incident that we covered in our third installment. The shooting occurred after a group of Mongols got into a fight with members of the Jezer tribe at a bar called La Via Basque. When the Mongols left, David was driving the follow car, and as he entered the freeway, he saw a motorcycle on fire and an ambulance. Later that night, David learned that two Mongol associates had been shot. So you believe that these two Mongols that had been shot on the freeway that night were targeted by Jezer tribe based on what had happened at the bar. Is that true? I know they were. How did you know? Because I know they were. 
Did you obtain information from other people in the Mongols that these persons were Jesus drug? Correct. Now, about a month later, did you become aware of another freeway shooting where Mongols were targeted? Uh, yes, I did. The second highway shooting took place in Corona, California, on September 20th, 2014, a little more than a month before the SWAT raid on David's home. According to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department, the incident was a shootout between the Mongols and the Hells Angels. Mongols associate Frankie Varela died as a result of his injuries. He was a former Navy firefighter who had worked as a corrections officer and was studying to become a nurse. Both freeway shootings were mentioned in the affidavit of the search warrant for the Martinez home. But the first was the most pertinent to the case. Detective Craig Adams allegedly had information from an informant that the Mongols were stockpiling weapons to retaliate against the Jeezer tribe. But at the trial, Brady Sullivan set out to convince the jury that in the wake of the shootings, David wasn't preparing to retaliate. He was scared for his safety and the safety of his family. Now, after the shootings, the freeway shootings, did you take any special precautions or measures to protect yourself at home? Uh, yes, I did. What did you do? Uh, I grabbed a shotgun and a revolver that we originally had stored in the garage in the metal safe box that they were in. And I placed the revolver in the little safe that I had in the armoire that was by the door. And I placed the shotgun on the side of the bed. Now, did you tell Sandra about that? Uh, no, I didn't. Did you have it in a concealed position? Uh, yes, I did. See, she would leave to go to work before me, so I got stuck. I, I didn't get stuck. Uh, I would make the bed, so she never disturbed that area. Sandra spent some time at her parents' house as well, right? On the weekends? That's correct. Uh, or when she would be mad at me. Was that very often? Uh, it would happen any time I would go out. Would it happen when you told her you were going to a Mongol-related function? Uh, yes, it did. Remember what Sandra said to LASD detectives Jeff Cochran and Frederick Morse. Do you know any of his friends from the Mongols? Um, I don't really associate with them. And tell you the truth, I don't like them. I don't like what they're about. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean what they're about, because when he has gone out before with them, all it is is just party, getting drunk. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, you say you're a brotherhood, but you're partying, and I'm not okay with that. Would Sandra be upset when you left to go to Mongol events? All the time. Was there tension in your relationship because of you being in the Mongols? Uh, very much so. Was that a reason why you wanted to quit the Mongols? Uh, one of the main reasons. Was there any other reason you wanted to quit the Mongols? It started feeling like a burden. It started... I went from being able to open my car door, start my car and leave, to opening my car door, looking over my shoulder, worrying about what was going to happen. So, yeah, it didn't feel good to live like that. Why were you looking over your shoulder? I think it's pretty obvious. A lot of violence was going on. Me rebelling against my commitment that I made to them, not knowing what it was going to lead to. I was hoping that it would lead to me peacefully getting kicked out, but I just, depending on who you're dealing with or the individual, it was never, you can never be too sure what's going to happen. So your concerns about your safety, you've indicated when you get in your car, 
that was a concern about your safety because from other Mongols, correct? Uh, I had to do with rivals too. So both other Mongols and Mongol rivals? I didn't feel like they were going to come shoot me or anything getting into a car, but with them, it was more of an issue of what they thought was their property. If I quit, how they were going to come and get it. Uh, with getting into my car and having to look over my shoulder or getting on my bike and being able to ride peacefully and enjoy the ride to where it's like, I've got to make sure nobody is going to run me over or shoot me to that extent was from rivals. So you were concerned about your safety from rivals, other street gangs and Mongols? Uh, Correct. And you were tired of living like that? I was. Now, do you, did you ever hear anything as a member of the Mongols? Did you ever become aware of what happens to somebody in the Mongols who quits and drops the patch? Uh, I've heard stories. You don't want to talk about this, do you? Uh, No, I don't. Have you ever heard stories about the Mongols physically assaulting members of the Mongols who tried to drop the patch? I've heard stories. Now, were you afraid to quit the Mongols? I was worried. Can you explain that? What were you worried about? Uh, I was worried for my safety. According to David, the Mongols and other rival gangs were dangerous enough that he believed he could be the target of an attack. David testified that he was afraid of the Mongols, but he was also worried that if he quit the club, there might be consequences. So you didn't quit the Mongols? Correct. Now, at this time in 2013 and 14, you were living with your family, right? Correct. Were you concerned at all about the safety of people in your family if you quit the Mongols? Yes, I was. What were you afraid of? Uh, People coming in my house. From the Mongols? Trying to collect property. Right. Through his questions, Brady Sullivan portrayed David as a man surrounded by danger from all sides. Danger from both rival gangs and the Mongols. In response, he slept with a shotgun by his bed. The shotgun that he fired the night of the SWAT raid. I want to direct your attention to October 28, 2014. The late hours of October 27, 2014, early October 28, 2014. Do you remember the period of time before the shooting in this case occurred? I can't forget. It was time for David to tell his story about the night of the shooting. With Brady Sullivan's guidance, he would have to recall specific details about the event that occurred more than four and a half years before he took the stand. As David began to speak, he looked towards the jury the captive audience of 12. Some stared back, others took notes. A few averted their eyes towards the floor. Now, the night before, let's take approximately 9 or 10 p.m. Do you recall where you were at? I believe, I know I was with my parents. Explain what you mean you were with your parents. My parents, uh, they are hard workers. There's a laundromat that my mom is employed to manage. Uh, She's in charge of uh, the laundromat is open seven days a week throughout the whole year. And she doesn't have to be there all day, but she is employed to manage at the end of the night to do the cleaning and close the doors. The doors automatically lock. So since I moved in with them, I got into the habit of if I was home to always go to sit there with them until they closed the laundromat and walked home with them. So that night, the night before the shooting, did you go to the laundromat with your parents? Uh, Yes, I did. What time did they typically close up? They typically close, I believe it, uh, the door started automatically to close at 10. And would you help them out with closing? 
Yes. What would that involve? Uh, just wiping down machines, mopping, or if there's a strange individual who is taking long, try to get them out of there as soon as possible so my parents can leave too. That night, do you recall coming back to the house after you were at the laundromat? Uh, yes, I do. What time do you think that probably was? 10.30, 11, somewhere around there, 11-ish. David testified that when he arrived home with his parents, he checked up on David Jr., Sandra, and baby Alyssa. Everyone was sound asleep, but David still had work to do. He went to the office to finish some pest inspection reports for his job at Terminix. You were working on these projects because you had a deadline to meet? Correct. Now, at some point while you were in the office, did Sandra come in the office? Uh, Yes, she did. And what did she say? Uh, Come to bed. Now, do you remember what time that was? Uh, Three in the morning. Now, did you go immediately to bed? Maybe within less than five minutes to that. Yes, I did. David explained that he walked into the bedroom and prepared to go to sleep. He took off his shoes and Levi jeans and pulled on some soft black shorts. Then he glanced at the clock. When you looked at the clock, what time was it? Uh, 3.33. After you looked at the clock, what did you do next? I lay down. On the bed? On the bed close to the wall where I always lay down. And did you fall asleep? I wouldn't say I fall asleep, but I laid there and I zoned out. Were you trying to go to sleep? I was trying to go to sleep. According to David, he laid down at approximately 3.33 a.m. The SWAT operation was scheduled for 4 a.m. In 27 minutes, a caravan of law enforcement vehicles would drive up the block and 17 armed officers would approach the Martinez home, prepared to serve a search warrant. After you lay down and tried to go to sleep, did something unusual happen? Yes. I heard what I thought at first was my dad getting up, because my dad would get up between 4.30 and 5 to get ready to go to work, so I didn't pay much attention to it. I thought it was him opening the bathroom door or something. So I lifted my head, and I just went to lay back down. And then what happened? And then I just started hearing a lot of banging. I felt like the wall was shaking, and you could hear, like, the vibration on the window. Did you hear any other sounds? Uh, No, I didn't. Now, was the bedroom door closed when you came to bed? Yes, it was. I closed it. Now, after you heard the banging sound, did you do something next? I reached for the shotgun. Why did you do that? I thought somebody was trying to break into my house. After you grabbed the shotgun because somebody was breaking into your house, what did you do next? I pumped it. What is that? Pumping the shotgun. What does that do? It loads it. Did you then open the bedroom door? Uh, Yes, I did. Now, after you opened the bedroom door, did you hear the sound differently? It was louder, uh, more intense, dogs barking. The two chihuahuas that were in the laundry room, they were really loud, so it echoed. So you heard the banging. Can you describe the banging sound? Uh, Just it was loud. I couldn't even, I couldn't make out what it was. Being here, I understand it was metal on metal, but I couldn't make out what it was. It was just loud. Can you tell where the sounds were coming from? Uh, When I opened the bedroom door, it was obvious that they were coming from the south side of the house, which was in the direction that I was heading. So that would be the driveway side? Yes, towards, I assume it was the living room. I didn't know anything was going on in the driveway. 
The driveway was where the gate was located, the gate that officers were pounding with a metal ram in their attempt to gain access to the backyard. From the time that you heard the banging sound to the time that you opened the bedroom door with a shotgun, how much time elapsed? From when I grabbed the shotgun to the door, maybe three, four seconds of that. Now, when you opened the bedroom door, where did you go next? I immediately made a left turn to head towards the living room, and I ran in that direction to see what was going on because my parents were there. Did you go down the hallway from the bedroom? Yes, I did. Okay. And when you were going down the hallway, what sounds did you hear? Uh, Banging, like popping noises. Did you have any suspicion that it was a gunshot sound? Uh, At some point, I did. Now, when you heard these banging sounds while you were in the bedroom, did you hear any voices identifying themselves or saying anything? No. When you opened the bedroom door and you went into the hallway to run toward the front door, did you hear anybody saying anything? Uh, I never heard a word. Now, after you went down the hallway, you then, what did you do next? Uh, I turned into the living room, took maybe two steps because I seen my dad by the door. What did you see? I seen my dad opening the wooden door and I tried to tell him to wait, wait because I didn't know who was coming in and I wanted to answer the door. What happened next? I remember telling my dad twice, wait, wait, Uh, but I don't think he heard me and he was opening the door. He had partially opened it, so I was to the side about maybe three or four feet to the side. So I positioned myself, and I aimed the shotgun towards the door because I thought someone was trying to break in. What did you see when you looked outside, if anything? I didn't see nothing. I seen I seen the screen door opening up, and I just remember seeing a barrel, a black barrel. At that moment, I thought someone had fired, and I fired the shotgun. Did you believe the object, the barrel of the object that was pointed inside the house, did you believe that that was a gun? Yes, I did. Why did you think it was a gun? Because that is what it looked like. And the door, the metal security door, was that open when you looked out? It was in the process of opening. When you looked outside, did you see anybody that you could identify? I didn't see nothing. It was dark. Do you see anybody who appeared to be police officers to you? No. Did you hear anybody identifying themselves as police officers? No. When you looked out there, how long did you wait before you fired your weapon? It happened so fast when I seen that barrel, not even a second. Now, after you fired your weapon, what happened next? I heard my dad screaming. What did your dad scream? Uh, I heard my dad say, police. I was shocked for a couple seconds, and then I turned around and laid down and gave, surrendered and started screaming, I'm sorry that I didn't know that it was the police. I told them, please don't shoot, I got kids in the house. And that's all I remember saying. Did you realize at that moment in time whether or not the shot you fired had struck a police officer? No. So when you said, quote, I'm sorry, what were you referring to? Uh, To firing a shotgun. When did you first become aware that there were even police at your house? Uh, When they started coming in. And what happened next after you laid down and put the shotgun down? I seen seen Sandra coming out of the room, uh, going to my son's room, going back to the room, and then going from the room with my daughter back to my son's room. And then she pops her head out, and I'm telling her to lay down, to get down because police was there. I didn't want them to shoot her. Now, at that time, you fired your weapon, and your dad said, quote, the police... Did your dad indicate whether or not he had been shot by the police? 
What did he say? He said, I heard him saying, they shot me. And also when, when they picked me up, I seen that he had a wound to his forearm. At that moment in time when you saw his injury and he said the police shot him, did you believe that the police had fired into the house and shot him? Uh, still to this day, I'm confused about those events. My parents are adamant about that they fired a shot, but the evidence shows that only one shot was fired. So I take responsibility for that one shot because I fired the shotgun. David, is it hard for you to face up to the fact that you may have shot your father when you fired your shotgun? I didn't see my father's arm anywhere in the location where I aimed the shotgun. So yes, it's hard for me to accept that. Now, so at the time this incident occurred, based on what your father said, did you believe there had been an exchange of gunfire between you and what turned out to be the police? Uh, yes. Throughout that day, did you believe that the police had actually shot your father? Yes. Why did you think that? Because I perceived to have felt like someone fired something in the patio at the moment that I also fired the shotgun. Brady Sullivan ended his direct examination by returning to the central question of the case, the question that the jury would face when they reached deliberations. Why did you fire your weapon? I wanted to deter anybody who was coming into my house away from doing any harm to my family. At the moment that you fired your gun, did you have any idea that it was the police out there? I would never fire at police or law enforcement ever. Would you ever deliberately fire a gun of any kind at the police? Never. Brady Sullivan's examination of David Martinez took roughly seven hours. In those seven hours, David presented his story to the jury. It was a story about an innocent man, a man who shot in self-defense, a man who fired his weapon to protect his family. And now the prosecution was going to try to tear that story apart. It was the deputy district attorney's job to find holes in David's testimony, to tease apart his motives, to root out inconsistencies in what he said on the stand and statements he had made in the past. And during this inquisition, David's emotional disposition would be scrutinized by the jury, a panel that would ultimately judge whether David was a liar or an honest man. Deputy DA Michael Blake took to the lectern. He held up a piece of Sean Diamond's tactical gear, a patch from the back of the fallen officer's vest. It read POLICE in bold capital letters, large enough and clear enough to see across the courtroom. The prosecutor locked eyes with David Martinez and began his cross-examination. Sir, I'm holding up People's 222 here. Can you read that? It says police. You said you fired a warning shot, right? That's correct. And you intended to fire a warning shot to warn who of what? To warn, to deter whoever was trying to break into my house. And you believe that whoever was trying to break into your house was there to murder you or your family. Is that true? That's correct. And you believe that if they got in, they could kill everyone in the house, right? They could harm my, my family members. Correct. And you are so afraid that from a distance of four to five feet, you are firing a warning shot, right? I don't understand your question. You are firing a warning shot at somebody that you think is going to murder your entire family, right? Into the air, into what was a patch of the sky from what I seen. How do you think they were going to kill your family? I seen a barrel. I seen what I perceived to be a gun. You didn't think they would shoot someone? It happened fast. I didn't, I don't know how else to react. 
You shot to kill that day, right? I shot to protect my family. Next, Michael Blake switched gears. He asked David about his altercation with the Maravia gang member. His questions flew at a breakneck pace, nipping the heels of David's answers. You've been in situations as a Mongol gang member where you've assaulted other people, including rivals of other gangs, right? That's incorrect. You've been in situations where, like you described in your direct testimony, you were protecting Raul, right? Right. Right. While you were protecting Raul against some threat from Arizona Maravilla, right? Correct. Okay. And you stepped in and injured this other person during that altercation? I hit him once. You hit him once and you cut him over the eye? Yes, I did. Okay. Was Raul injured? He was already injured. Was he injured from the altercation? No, he wasn't. Were you injured? No, I wasn't. So the only person bleeding and injured was the person that was this other person from the rival, right? From one hit, yes. When you were firing the warning shot then, your intention is to do what exactly? Explain it. To keep whoever was trying to come into my house from coming in, to defend my family, to protect my family, to protect my home. If you really believe that, why didn't you aim a little lower? I don't understand. Because I was, my dad was right there and my mom was on the other side. I was aiming to where there was an opening and where I seen a patch of the sky as the door was opening. You shot your own father in the arm, right? That's what you guys claim, yes. You don't believe you shot your father in the arm? I don't know. I'm confused about that. Okay. You don't believe you shot Sean Diamond in the face either, right? You've seen the evidence here. The evidence shows that he was shot in the back of the neck. Michael Blake raised up the patch from Sean Diamond's SWAT vest. And when you saw this patch, you saw it on Sean Diamond's back that day, right? I never seen the patch. You never saw the patch? I never saw that patch at the moment that the incident occurred, no. The porch light was on, right? It looked dark. It was dark. The porch light was on, right? You are asking me what I seen, right? No, I'm asking you if the porch light was on. It looked dark. I don't know if the porch light was on. I had no knowledge of that. Remember that Guadalupe testified that the porch light was on and that she saw officers outside the door. So why didn't David see them? How did he miss the patch on Sean Diamond's back that said police? Blake continued to interrogate David's account of the raid. Did the whole house shake when the booming sound was going on? The wall of my room was shaking. And when you opened your bedroom door, is that the first time you heard the dogs? Is that what you remember? That is what I remember. And the two chihuahuas were barking real, real loud and the banging intensified that much more. So you heard the banging at the front door, right? I assumed it was coming from the front door. So you didn't hear banging at the side gate when this first began? I don't know where it was coming from, but it was loud and it was banging. At that moment, I didn't know where it was coming from, but I knew it was coming from that direction of the house. At this point, Blake made a sharp pivot to a piece of incriminating evidence found in David's home. Now the lights were on in the office, right? I believe I left them on, right? It's because you were in there? I was in there. And you were in there with at least two firearms? Correct. A 44 Magnum revolver, right? Right. And a stolen 9mm, right? I didn't know it was stolen, but yes, I was in there with that 9mm as well. Where did you get that 9mm? It was left in my possession Sunday night, Sunday evening. So I take responsibility for being in possession of that firearm. Who were you holding it for? 
I take responsibility for being in possession of that firearm. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking... I take responsibility... Who were you holding it for? I'm not going to tell you. You are not going to answer the question? I'm not going to answer that. You were refusing to answer that question. I'm not going to give you a name. You were holding it for another Mongol brother, right? I take responsibility for being in possession of that firearm. Will the court instruct the witness to answer the question, please? Sir, you were instructed to answer that question. I take responsibility. It was my gun. David held firm, refusing to disclose who gave him the gun. But Michael Blake dug deeper into a subject that seemed to make David uncomfortable. David's relationship with the Mongols. You said you reached a point where you wanted out very badly. Do you remember saying that when Mr. Sullivan was asking you questions? Those weren't my exact words that you are stating right now, but yes. Did you want out badly at some point between the time you became a full patch member and the time you shot Sean Diamond? I was having turmoil within myself, within my relationship. I'm not asking about your feelings, okay? Did you reach a point where you wanted out so badly that you wanted to be expelled from the Mongols before you shot Sean Diamond? Yes. Who was the chapter president when this was going on with you at Montebello? I'm not going to divulge that information. Are you refusing to answer that question? Yes, I am. Your Honor, would the court instruct the witness to answer the question, please? Sir, you were instructed to answer that question. Your Honor, may I note for the record a deafening silence of several seconds? You may note a silence. His name is Jason. Jason what? I don't remember his last name. During that time that you wanted out of the Mongols so badly that you were doing things that you thought could get you expelled, according to your testimony, did you ever just go to Jason and tell Jason you wanted out? No. Did you go to him and tell him that you were having all the problems that you described when Mr. Sullivan was asking you questions? He knew that I was having some issues financially. Also, I wasn't attending meetings and being on my bike. He knew. Did you ask him to allow you to quit? No, I didn't. Okay. In fact, you never quit the Mongols to this day, right? Me letting them know? No. Have you quit the Mongols? Right now, as you sit here today, you have not quit the Mongols. True or not? Well, that depends on who you ask. I'm asking you. I don't know my status right now. I'm not asking your status. Have you quit? No, I haven't. I haven't formally told anybody I quit. You are still a Mongol right now. Probably not. Well, I'm not asking other people, I'm asking you. If you've not quit, then you are still a Mongol. If you're asking me if I formally told people that I'm done, no, I haven't told anybody. I'm keeping that to myself. Even after the raid on David's home, after more than four years in jail, and after a grueling trial, David still hadn't formally left the Mongols. Michael Blake latched onto David's admission of his nebulous status within the club. The prosecutor sought to convince the jury that David's reluctance to quit wasn't because he feared the Mongols. It was because he was loyal to them and that they never posed a real threat to his safety. So were you really afraid that the Mongols could come to your house in the way that you described in your testimony and break in and kill everyone? I wouldn't expect it to be like that, but that night, because I had argued with somebody the night before, that's one of the reasons why I said I thought it was the Mongols. David explained that his fears were exacerbated by a phone call he had with his friend Albert and a series of messages on a text thread that included David and several other Mongols. What were the texts about? Very suggestive about not being on your bike, about, about not doing things. You not doing things you were supposed to do as a patch Mongol. 
I thought they were directed at me towards meaning that, yes. You took it personally whether they were meaning that or not, right? Correct. Okay. Tell us the details of this text message. Tell us what was in it. It had been going on for a month. The same stuff, repetitive. They were just very suggestive about someone falling off a bike and not wanting to get back on it. And I thought they were directed at me because I hadn't been on my bike and I wasn't riding and I wasn't showing up to meetings. I did to please a few attend a mandatory patch party on Sunday because I was just trying to figure things out. So it was based on that text that you felt they would be coming to force their way into your home and possibly kill everyone inside because they are joking about you not getting back on your bike? It wasn't based on that. It was based on the conversation I had with Albert. And again, when I went to the room to sleep and I got up and I thought the banging was going on, I naturally thought because of the issue that arose that night that it was him. Did I think that they were there to kill my family? No. But when I came out of the room, the intensity of that experience that I experienced of what was going on felt like a threat. Michael Blake held up a 12-gauge Mossberg shotgun and displayed it for the jury. Is this the shotgun you used to shoot Sean Diamond? That's what I'm being charged with, correct? How did you hold it when you shot Officer Diamond? The bailiff handed David a wooden pointer so that he could demonstrate. What position was your head when you pulled the trigger, looking straight down the barrel? Yeah. Were your eyes open? Before the shot, I believe they were, yes. As you were standing there and the doors came open, how long were they open before you fired the shot? Seconds, maybe two seconds, three seconds. Did your father reach for the firearm when he was shot? Uh, no, I never seen my father's arm come towards the firearm whatsoever. Was he trying to stop you? No, he wasn't. He wasn't aware that I was in the living room. When I called for him to wait, I don't think he heard me because they never acknowledged me. They never turned around or anything from my perspective. And when you fired that shot, you were around five feet from Sean Diamond, right? No. I was three to four feet away from my dad at an angle. Were you five feet away or less from Sean Diamond when you shot? I just told you. How far was your father from Sean Diamond when you fired the shot? I have no idea because I never seen Sean Diamond. Following this exchange, Michael Blake queued up audio files for the end of his cross-examination recordings that had the potential to undermine David's story and threaten his credibility. Sir, after you shot Officer Diamond and the police came into the living room, you told them that you had issues with the Mongols, right? I made that comment, yes. Your Honor, may I play the tape? The recording was of a conversation between David Martinez and Raul Carrera. You might remember the recording from our second installment. What? Yeah, fool, don't trip. You all right, fool? Hey, I'm What's up, bro? Just a few hours after David told the police, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I thought you were the Mongols. David was interacting with the Mongols as though they were his friends. Michael Blake let the evidence speak for itself. He moved on to a phone call between David and his friend Robert that occurred on April 12th of 2015. The following is a reenactment of that call. You might remember it from our second installment. Yeah. Well, I got the autopsy report finally back, and it, it goes with everything that is being said. You got hit from behind. Of course. On his neck. Of course. It came out through the front of his chin, you know? And they're there, but they want, they want to blame it on me. Them saying that I did it. They staged a lot of stuff in the scene, you know, and I don't know, man, like my PD, he's good, but he wants me to claim something that I didn't do, you know, and I'm not going to do that. 
David's conversation with Robert was inconsistent with David's testimony. The recording was proof that David had changed his story in the past. Now, the jury could use that information in evaluating whether or not they believed what David said in the present. As further evidence of David's evolving story, Michael Blake played one final recording, a jail call between David and his mother Guadalupe on November 7, 2014. The conversation was in Spanish. The following is an English translation portrayed by actors. We saw everything that happened, and and there's only one truth, okay? Oh, Mom, I know. You are innocent, and everything is going to be fine. Don't worry. My rifle never, never, never fired, okay? I know, son. I know. I saw everything, son. I saw everything, okay? Sir, this was a call that you completed on November 7, 2014 with your mother. That's correct. No further questions. Michael Blake sat back down at the council's table, leaving questions about David's integrity to linger in the juror's mind. David clasped his hands and set his gaze forward. Brady Sullivan had one last chance to rehabilitate his client's credibility with the jury while he was on the stand. David, you heard a phone call that was played of a conversation you had with your mother on November 7th, 2014, correct? I heard the phone call. And during that phone call, your mother said to you that you were innocent and that the person who shot the police officer was one of the police officers outside, right? Yes, she did. She told you, she said that you were innocent and that you didn't commit the crime, right? That's correct. And you know that since that date until this trial, your mother still believes that the shot that was fired that struck the officer happened outside the house, correct? Yes. All right. And you heard your mother testify that she believes that the shot that was fired that struck the police officer came from outside the house, correct? She didn't say she believes. She says she's seen. That's what she's always said, right? That's what she's always said. And that's what she's always said to you, right? That's what she's always said to me and been very adamant. Now, you heard the phone call that you had with Robert, right? Yes, sir. That's where you tell Robert that you found out about the autopsy report, correct? That's correct. And the autopsy report showed that the officer had been struck in the back of the neck, correct? In the back lower part of his neck, correct. And after you found out about the autopsy report, and after you had spoken with your mother and your father about the case, at that time, did you believe that the police officers outside had struck Officer Diamond? Because I felt that they had fired as well, I assumed because it was in the back of his neck, lower part of his neck, I assumed that. Not only assumed, I wanted to believe that. You wanted to believe that? Yes, still do. Now, back in April of 2015, you were very unhappy with me as your lawyer. You told Robert that in the phone call, right? I don't know about unhappy, but we weren't agreeing on things. Why did you tell Robert that, quote, he wants me to claim something I didn't do? Well, at that time, I thought it was partially true. The self-defense part of defending my family was true, but because I had thought that he was shot by his own, I couldn't accept the fact and say that I shot him. So at that time, you couldn't accept it? Part of it, right. That is part of what you and me always argued about. So after you got the autopsy report, your family hired a lawyer to represent you, 
that you thought would claim on your behalf that the shot that killed Officer Diamond was fired by one of the officers, correct? I never signed a retainer, so he was hired by my parents. But you wanted an attorney to represent you other than me? I wanted an attorney who was going to bring out the truth. And at that time, what did you believe the truth was? That Sean Diamond had been shot by one of their own. At some point, did you come to believe that you were wrong about that? I have come to accept the fact that my actions caused the death of Sean Diamond. That was not an easy thing for you to do, was it? I don't think it ever will be. In his final questions, Sullivan circled back to the part of David's story that was most important to his case. The one part of David's story that had never changed. When the police first came into the house after the shooting, did you indicate to them whether or not you were aware it was the police? I indicated that I didn't know it was the police, right. Have you ever said anything other than that to anybody? Never. Have you always told everyone that you didn't know it was the police and that you mistakenly shot a police officer? Yes. Have you always told everyone that you were doing it in order to defend your family? I have said that, yes. At the end of David's testimony, his shoulders were back, chin held high. He had told his story. There was nothing more he could do. But for Brady Sullivan, the work was far from done. He still had to face off with Deputy DA Jack Garden in closing arguments. By that time, the courtroom had progressed from merely crowded to a certified fire hazard. Closing arguments in the trial of David Martinez were the marquee event of the courthouse, and anticipation was electric. The attorneys were at the top of their game, and the stakes were nearly as high as they get. Both lawyers had the weight of another man's life on their shoulders, one who was already dead, and another who could lose his freedom. Closing arguments lasted two days. The prosecution addressed the jurors first. Jack Garden walked to the lectern as Michael Blake launched a PowerPoint on the court's TV screen. The first slide displayed a picture of Sean Diamond in uniform. He was the proud SWAT officer, the loving father of two, the son who used to call his mother in the middle of the night to assure her he was safe. In his argument and rebuttal, Jack Garden summarized the prosecution's case. He reminded the jury of David's involvement with the Mongols, a dangerous motorcycle gang, and argued that David knew the police were at his door when he fired his shotgun. According to the prosecutor, David's testimony was a manipulative lie. It was evident that David saw the officers under the porch light and heard their repeated announcements before he fired the fatal shot that hit Officer Sean Diamond. At the end of his speech, Garden directly appealed to the jury. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you the evidence here is overwhelming against the defendant. It's overwhelming for first-degree murder, also overwhelming with regards to count two, the assault with a firearm on a police officer. Thank you for your time, your diligence. I think when you go back there and discuss it amongst yourselves, you will come to the true verdict, which is guilty on both counts. Thank you. Jack Garden returned to his seat at the counsel's table, yielding the floor to Brady Sullivan. The public defender rose and gave a nod to his client, the Mongol, the termite inspector, the family man. Sullivan argued that David didn't hear the announcements when he came out of the bedroom because the metal ram was hitting the gate and the family's dogs were barking. 
He reasoned that David didn't see the police on the porch because a split second after he got to the living room, he saw the barrel of a gun pointed at his father, and David fired his weapon. The public defender contended that David had a reasonable belief in immediate danger, and therefore a reasonable justification for using lethal force. In closing, he addressed the tragedy at the center of the case. We've got a police officer who is dead. That's a tragedy of enormous proportions, no question about it. But you can't let that interfere with your job to follow the law. I know it's hard, but I believe that if you do that job in a dispassionate, professional, objective manner, that the result is going to be that you're going to find David Martinez not guilty of the charges in this case. Thank you. The case was now in the hands of the jury. After instructions from the judge, 12 panelists would convene to determine whether or not the prosecution had proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. It would not be an easy task. In criminal cases, jury deliberations rarely last more than five hours. In this case, deliberations took five days. So what happened behind closed doors? And what was the jury's verdict? To find out, we'll hear from two of the jurors who witnessed and participated in the debates firsthand. So why don't we get into deliberations? Most frustrating week of my life. I'm telling you, my mind was just like floored. I'm like, what in the world are these people smoking? That's next time on Night Raid. I'll tell the that you're a goddamn faker. I'll get my alimony. I'll get my alimony. You can find this entire Night Raid series wherever you get your podcasts. Night Raid is a production of Crime Story Media in partnership with E1 Entertainment. Our executive producer is Carrie Antholis. I'm Molly Miller, the host, producer, and writer of this episode. Associate producers are Brittany Bookbinder, Lexi Notabartolo, and Aaron Koronek. Audio editing by Chris Terracone. Rick Schnapp did our mix with additional audio editing by Tyler Newhouse. Music and sound design by Eldad Guetta, with Foley assistance by Elia Guetta, and scoring assistance by Nikki Hemmingson. Additional music by Half Gringa. Tonancina Sparza is our casting director. Voice actors in this episode were Taylor Goff, Tonancina Sparza, David Hemmingson, Alex Alfaro, Ellie Ramirez, Eduardo Polito, Blanca A. Soto, David Kelsey, and Carrie Antholis. Special thanks to Sam Dillon. Our title track is Alimony by Half Gringa. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe to Night Raid. Thanks for listening. <laughs>